0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. We're making our way verse by verse through this uh, book this year. We come now to the fifth chapter and the sixth verse. Here in chapter five, Paul is speaking to the first century Christians of Ephesus, many of whom have come out of a very wicked and a pagan lifestyle, and he is instructing them in their new walk. He has told them that they are new men and women, that they are to lay aside the old self and put on the new self, they are to robe themselves in robes of righteousness and lay aside the dirty garments of sin. And what he's really saying is that uh, in a practical way, your life must change now that you are a Christian. And it will change if you are truly born again. The way you think, speak, and behave no longer is to be marked by impurity, but rather with practical righteousness. They are, in other words, to leave behind fornication and drunkenness and filthiness and rotten speech and to begin to grow more and more into the image of Jesus. And we call that process sanctification. Now Paul knows that there will be an incredible amount of pressure on these new believers to return to their old pattern of life. They have old friends and acquaintances that are going to try to convince them that the way they used to be really wasn't that bad after all to come on back and live like they used to. And so Paul writes these words in Ephesians five, beginning in verse six, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn or prove what, the, what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. The first thing that we find in this text is Paul's call for relational discernment, relational discernment. He he tells them that they need to be exceedingly careful whose counsel they follow. He says, let no one deceive you. Now we know that the ultimate deceiver is Satan. That's one of his titles. He's a liar, Jesus says, and the father of it. So to deceive and manipulate is the purview of Satan, but he uses individuals. He uses humans that he controls to deceive people. And one of the ways that we're deceived is through their empty words. Now, empty words are those words which have no weight or substance. Now, they could be many words, but altogether they amount to nothing. Now, we all know people, I suspect, who can talk, 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 and never say a thing. We also know people who say very little, but when they speak, their opinion holds your attention because normally what they say has weight and substance and value. Abraham Lincoln was famous for saying it's better to remain silent and risk people thinking you a fool than opening your mouth and leaving no doubt. That's a very biblical thing that Lincoln said because Proverbs 17 says even a fool is thought wise if he keeps quiet. The problem is that most fools can't keep quiet. They have to share their foolishness with other people. They're very verbose. And these people who are living this debaucherous, wicked lifestyle, Paul says are going to attempt to deceive these first century Christians to convince them to come back, to stop living lives of righteousness and run with them into depravity. Well, they're 2000 years removed from the pinning of this letter, but people have not changed. Culture has not changed people still speak empty words. Let me give you three examples of empty words I hear in our culture all the time as it relates to sin and righteousness. Here's one. God made me like this. If he doesn't like my lifestyle, he has only himself to blame. This is who I am. Have you heard that? I hear it all the time. We better be very careful with that kind of talk because the Bible is very clear that God does not sin, neither does he tempt to sin. We must never lay our sin at the foot of of God and blame Him with it. Here's another one I hear. Surely, God wants me to be happy, and the way I'm living makes me happy, so God must be pleased. Well, we can debate whether or not God always wants us happy, but here's what is not debatable. God wants us holy, and so, Happiness is fleeting. God wants us to have true joy, which is found only in obedience to him. Here's one I hear a lot from teenagers. You only live once. In fact, there's a bumper sticker and a slogan, a t-shirt, YOLO, Y-O-L-O. You only live once. Well, that's true, partially. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed to man once to die and then to be judged by God. Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Now, what things is he talking about? Well, the things that he mentions in places like verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let no filthiness nor foolish talk or true joking even come from your mouth. Those are the things that bring about the wrath of God. Let's talk about the wrath of God. There's probably no concept in the Bible more maligned and belittled and doubted in our culture than the wrath of God. The idea that God hates sin and God punishes sin. People don't believe that. They think it laughable. I was in, started to say a barber shop, but those aren't around much anymore. The place I get my haircut, whatever they call it, for $8.99, obviously. And I always get there at 8.59 because they open the door on Saturday morning at nine o'clock and I want to be the first in line. And so I got there and there were already two other men there. And finally they opened the door and we went inside and uh, usually there's, there's three or four ladies there to cut the hair. It's very quick and uh, there was only one lady working and someone commented that she was the only one there and she said, yeah, I don't know where the others are. And, 10 or 15 minutes went by, and finally another lady came through the door breathlessly, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. There was the worst traffic accident on the interstate I've ever seen. Surely someone must have been killed. It was terrible. And then 10 minutes into her conversation with her, her client, she said, oh, did you all feel the earthquake this morning? Some of you felt it last Saturday. She said, I know what my mother would say. She'd say, you better get ready because Jesus is coming soon. And then she threw her head back as if that was the most ridiculous thing she'd ever heard in her life. And I thought to myself, and I should have said it out loud, but I didn't, to my shame. You just confessed that in the last 15 minutes you've survived a terrible car accident on the interstate and an earthquake, and you laugh at the wrath of God. That is just one snippet of how our culture relates to catastrophe. The Bible teaches that every time there's a natural disaster, a catastrophe, anywhere in the world, it should be a warning to the rest of us who survive to get ready for our own judgment day. Jesus said to those who said, what about that tower that fell and killed those innocent people? Jesus says, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. All of us must view those acts as acts of mercy that we were spared. And and yet the wrath of God is belittled the entire notion that God punishes sin is scorned but here's what First Peter 4 says for the time has already passed that's been sufficient for you to carry out the desires of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality lust drunkenness carousing drinking parties and abominable idolatries and all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you Remember, Paul and Peter are writing to first century Christians. Not enough time has passed yet for there to be second and third and fourth generation Christians like like many of our families that we came from. These people were coming right from the gutter of life. They were coming out of pagan worship practices which were steeped in idolatry and sexual immorality and drunkenness. It was all part of the system. Everyone did it. And Peter says, look, you've done that enough Now you're a new person. Now's the time for you to walk. But he says, don't be surprised when those who haven't come to faith malign you because of your new lifestyle. He says, but they'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Leave the judging to God. Now, you know, this is why people invent God's, little g, of their own imaginations. In our culture, for example, almost every household has at least one Bible. People know that the God of the Bible punishes sin, but they don't like the God of the Bible, and so they invent a God in their own imagination that they can better get along with, one that does not hold them accountable, one that does not judge their sin. The Bible calls this idolatry, because to disbelieve the clear teachings of the Bible about the nature and the character of God, I believe, is just as idolatrous as bowing down to a Buddha statue. God has revealed himself through the pages of his scripture. And so that leads us secondly to his plan for our lives which is also revealed in scripture and that is fruitfulness. God wants his children to be fruitful. We saw that this weekend in our engaged conference. The first commandment God gave to man was to be fruitful in every way, and that includes spiritually. When I have the opportunity to speak to a group of young people, teenagers, who have their entire adult life before them, I must always bring my remarks from the same text of scripture. It's the very first Psalm, listen to it again. David writes, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted firmly by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And so he's saying, if you will submit yourself to the word of God, if you'll meditate on it day and night and you'll be a doer of the word that is obedient to God, your life's gonna produce fruit. Didn't Jesus say that? If you abide in me, you will bear fruit and much fruit. But there are those who ignore that. So he says in verse 4, the wicked are not so. That is, they do not bear fruit. But rather they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish. The Bible often speaks of an unbeliever's life as fruitless. Another way to say that is is pointless. If if something is fruitless, it is unproductive and wasteful. A a tree that is unfruitful takes the nutrients and the water from the soil, but it never gives back. It never fulfills its God-given purpose. I have a coaching buddy from years ago who was, shall we say, harsh sometimes. He had a name for kids at school who had lots of talent and abilities, but were unproductive and selfish and lazy. He called them oxygen thieves. (laughs) He says that they steal the good air the rest of us could be using to be productive. That's pretty harsh. The Bible simply calls them sons of disobedience. That's what he says here. These are the sons of disobedience that one day God will judge you know, in the New Testament times, uh, they didn't use a lot of adjectives. They they would call someone a son or a daughter of whatever lifestyle they were living. Jesus called the Pharisees children of the devil, sons of the devil. James and John, two of his disciples, were called sons of thunder because they had uh, that kind of personality. And so Paul refers to these people as sons of disobedience. That is their life, was known for their failure to obey God. And Paul says to these first century Christians, do not be partakers with them. That is don't join them in their lifestyle. Now he's not saying have no contact with them. He's not saying build a 50 foot ivory tower and hide out until Jesus comes. If that were the case, we could not fulfill our duty, our commandment to go and make disciples. We could not be salt and light. Jesus says you don't light a candle and put it under a bushel basket. We have to be interacting with lost people if they're ever going to come to faith, if we're going to impact them for the kingdom of God. He's saying as you are having this contact with them, don't be drawn into the philosophies that they have and certainly don't share in the behavior. Don't be partakers with them in this debaucherous way of life. We have to relate to a dying world in order to share the gospel, but but we're not to be like them. Paul says in Romans to don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This, of course, speaks of the new birth. This speaks of regeneration. There's no other way to explain a group of people who were so steeped in immorality suddenly being so obviously changed and different. They were born again. They're new creatures. And one of the things that occurs when a person is born again is that their eternal address changes. The Bible says when we're saved, we are transferred spiritually out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. He adopts us. We're talking about adoption this morning. That's a very biblical concept. Spiritual adoption. God takes children of the devil, and he adopts them into his forever family. They are forever changed from one kingdom to another. But what happens after we've been in this kingdom of light for a while, if we're not careful, we'll become angry and bitter and resentful about people who are behaving just like we used to. And so there's a warning here. Don't be bitter and angry with sinners. Don't take judgment into your own hands. Let God be the judge. As we relate to lost people, we should be compassionate and merciful and kind and generous. Agreed? The the problem is a lot of Christians believe that to tell people the truth about their sinful condition is the antithesis of kindness. It is not. In fact, it's my belief that the most compassionate, merciful, generous thing any believer can do for a lost person is point out their need of a Savior. But be careful as you're doing that that you don't fall into the same behavior that they're in. Thirdly, that calls us to our need for moral clarity. Now if you and I are anything alike, you have to constantly fight the tendency to become cynical and sour as it relates to our political system and process. Maybe you're nothing like me, but increasingly as November approaches, I find myself fighting this tendency towards cynicism because as I observe the political process, it seems to me that politics in our nation has devolved into the art of ambiguity. That is, trying to get a politician to take a clear moral position on anything is as frustrating as nailing jello to the wall. Paul says Christians are not to be like that. We are to be clear about what we believe and why we believe it. So he says, do not become partners with them. You were at one time darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. How do we know if we are being children of light? If we are doing that which is good, and righteous and true. Now those are three words that are really nuances of the same, same thing. When, when we do what is good, it's how we relate to other people. We treat others, as Jesus says, as we want to be treated. When, when we're behaving in a, in a right fashion, that most likely speaks of our relationship to God. And when we do things that are true, we know that we're on solid ground because our God is a God of truth. Jesus said of himself, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we're doing the opposite of that, if we're doing what is wrong, if we're doing what is not good and we're doing that which is false, we can rest assured we're not behaving as children of light. Well, the question becomes not should we be children of of light but uh, what is the purpose? Well he tells us here. He says our lives as Christians are to be a constant rebuke to sin. He says, You once were darkness. Now get that. He's not saying you were a victim of the darkness. We live in a a victim society, right? Nothing's ever anybody's fault. Paul doesn't let us off the hook. He doesn't say you were a victim of darkness. He said you were darkness. You were part of the problem. But now he says, You are light in the world. God has transformed your life, and now you're light. Now, what does light do? Light exposes what is hidden in the dark. How do we do that? Two ways, primarily. First of all is with our lips. Christians need to take every opportunity to speak truth to a lost and dying world. When a moral issue arises, we should speak the truth about that issue. Now, no matter how inconvenient it may be, No matter in what a minority we may find our opinion. But another way, and I think probably the most important way in which we're light in the world is with our lives. We would not be aware of darkness were it not for the light. Can you think of that? If you were born never having eyesight, you wouldn't know what you were missing. You would just think this was normal for everyone. And so the world would not be aware of their darkness unless there is his light. And that's why the Gospel of John says, Jesus came into the world, the light of the world, right? But there's a warning attendant with that because it says, but men loved darkness rather than the light. You remember when you're about 14 or 15 years old and your parent would come in at six o'clock in the morning to get you up for the school bus and they'd turn on the lights suddenly. You just love that, right? You should so appreciate my thank you for getting me up. In such a kind way. No. You resent it, right? You pull the, head up, the covers up over your head. And that, that's by and large what the world does when they hear the gospel, when their sin is being exposed. They cover their eyes. They cover their ears. They don't want to hear it. Jesus told his disciples that a servant is not better than his master. The vast majority of people did not appreciate the presence of light. They didn't appreciate Jesus. We know that because they crucified him. And he says, the servant is not better than his master. But here is the glorious truth of the New Testament. When we fulfill our mission of being light in the world, by our lips and by our lives, some will be saved. Do you believe that? Some of them... Are in this room today. Two of them were baptized not 30 minutes ago. When we take the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world, most are going to reject it, but some will believe. When we send these missionaries out to pioneer areas and they come back and say, Yeah, most people do reject it, but some believed, I said, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's what the Bible said would happen. And yet be encouraged. Because God never called any of us to be successful in the eyes of the world. He called all of us to be obedient. Now, in the midst of all of this seeming bad news about darkness and God's judgment, he offers this invitation. Verse 12 says, it is, it is shameful even to speak of the things they, they do in secret. By the way, I think that's very practical. We don't have to rehearse and talk about and read about ad infinitum every detail of sin that's in our culture to know it's bad, right? You don't have to listen to every album that comes out to know it's rotten. You don't have to watch every TV show so you can stay up on, on what's going on in the world. Just understand it's getting worse and worse. But then he gives this invitation, verse 14. For anything that comes visible is light, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul says, in Ephesians, that before we were saved, we were dead in trespasses and sins. He's probably paraphrasing a passage from Isaiah chapter 60. And he talks about one who is slumbering and, and one who is unconscious and light comes upon him and now he sees, isn't that what the man said that Jesus healed of blindness? I once was blind and now I say, isn't that what every Baptist for hundreds of years has sung in amazing grace? I once was blind and now I see. Here's the invitation to anyone here today. Maybe you entered this room to please your mother this morning. Maybe you came because you were bored. Maybe you came out of rank curiosity. Maybe you came because the Lord had a divine appointment with you. You needed to hear this message. You needed to... Be in the presence of of light today. And if so, give the Lord glory and thank him for his mercy. It's a divine kindness to you that he would expose your sin by the word of God because without the presence of light, you would not know you're in the darkness. The difference between saved people and lost people is lost people are still in the dark and saved people used to be in the dark, right? But God... Through regeneration, he's opened our blind eyes. He's breathed spiritual life into us. We once were dead, and now we live. We once were blind, and and now we see. What about you? Do you have moral clarity? Or do you find yourself attracted back to the things of the world? Don't go back to the things of the world. Be a child of the light. Walk in the light. Put away that lifestyle Peter says, you've had plenty of time for that. Fold up those dirty garments of sin, put them away. Put on the clean clothes of practical righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, we we thank you for the confrontational nature of this particular passage. Father, I'm grateful that so many in this room grew up in homes where the parents and grandparents, even great grandparents were Christians and at a, at a young age, they led us to, to faith in you and we avoided some of the harsher sins of the world. And yet Lord, whether we told a white lie or, or whether we were on death row for multiple murders, our spiritual condition was the same. We, we were lost and in darkness and blind and we didn't even know it. In fact, many of us were self-assured and confident that the wrath of God didn't even exist. But Lord, someone shared the truth with us and by your spirit our eyes were open and we saw our need of a savior and you granted us repentance and faith and we bowed our knee to your lordship and we were born again. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room today who is not saved, that your spirit would convict their hearts that the way they're living is displeasing to you. And Lord, I pray you that the spirit would convince them of the truth that your wrath is not only real, it is imminent, and it abides on them. And Father, I pray you would break their heart, bring them to you, Father. Lord, I pray for our nation today. I pray for spiritual awakening. Help us not as Christians, Lord, to grow cynical and jaded, but to recognize that we have the good news, that we are light in the world, and our task is to call sleepers to wakefulness. Give us boldness to do that, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.